And now reading from Romans chapter 8, verse 12 through 17 from the Common English Bible. So then, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. But it isn't an obligation to ourselves to live our lives on the basis of selfishness. If you live on the basis of selfishness, you are going to die. But if you put to death the actions of the body with the Spirit, you will live. All who are led by God's Spirit are God's sons and daughters. You didn't receive a spirit of slavery to lead you back again into fear, but you received a spirit that shows you are adopted as his children. With the Spirit we cry, Abba, Father. The same Spirit agrees with our spirit that we are God's children, but if we are children, we are also heirs. We are God's heirs and fellow heirs with Christ if we really suffer with him so that we can also be glorified with him. Here ends the reading. May God grant us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Every year after Pentecost, Trinity Sunday rolls around just like today. And every single year I wrestle with our selected scripture readings and Trinity Sunday in general because we actually cannot find in the Bible a complete treatise on this theological metaphor. Scripture neither explicitly defines nor explains the Trinity. Now, I don't think I am outright saying that Christians just made this stuff out of up out of thin air. We do seem to have definite glimpses of this Trinitarian language and understanding of God all throughout the biblical witness. In this passage from the book of Romans we just read, we have glimpses of our God as three persons. Paul speaks of the Spirit bearing witness in us and giving us the courage to call out for God, our Creator, our Father, our Mother, our Parent. And crying out as God's children helps us to remember that we are also joint heirs to God's promises along with the member of the Trinity that we as Christians typically refer to as the Son, Jesus, our brother. So, as you can see, in just this one passage, we actually have all three persons of the Trinity highlighted for us. Creator, Son, and Spirit. We have a glimpse of the nuts and bolts, the inner workings, if you will, of what makes God tick, at least in the biggest and most theological sorts of ways. And we see other glimpses in the Gospels as well. In the Gospel according to Matthew, we are commanded to go and baptize in the name of the Creator, the Son, and the Spirit. And we overhear Jesus addressing the one he calls Father, demanding to know why he hangs forsaken on the cross. In the Gospel according to John, we hear constant talk from Jesus about the Advocate, the Spirit of Truth, who will carry on the act in the action at hand. In the Gospel according to Luke at Jesus' baptism, we overhear a voice calling Jesus the Beloved Son. I could continue citing more glimpses, more instances of Trinitarian talk in Scripture. And so while this theological doctrine, the doctrine of the Trinity, this particular God talk, is rooted in our Scriptures, it is never explicitly labeled as such or fully explained or detailed in our Scriptures. And at the very least, however, the language is highly, are you ready, relational. 
One might even say the language is divinely relational. Each part of this vision of how God works is dependent or relates to the other parts. It's as if the scriptures drop hints about this holy mystery, but always does it in a way that protects that mystery just a bit. The great poet Emily Dickinson once wrote, Tell the truth, but always tell it at a slant. Now, our scriptures tell the truth about God and about how God is at work in the world as best as the folks at the time could understand it. But when it comes to God's inner workings, that truth is always told at a slant that shows the absolute necessity of relationship. Now, I have to admit to you that I cannot adequately explain the Trinity. I cannot define it for you just how God the Creator, Son, and Spirit are three persons in one. But even as much as I wish I could sometimes, I'm actually not sure it would be that faithful anyway. And so perhaps the more faithful thing to do then is to uh, come up with a way that just to tell you what inspires me about this poetic understanding of God that we call the Trinity. And maybe you can reflect on it in case there is something in it along the way that inspires you, maybe even by surprise. You may or may not know it, but you're actually being bold and radical when you confess belief in a triune God. You can use the traditional language of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or like me, you can use the more inclusive language of God the source of life, word of truth, spirit of love. But whatever relational language you use, when you talk about God in this manner, you're making the bold and radical claim that God is neither static nor monolithic. It's actually quite a bold, radical claim that somehow the same God who created life out of chaos also walked the earth with Jesus and still walks with us today. And when we ponder the mystery of God as a sort of multi-layered, multi-sensory, mysteriously, well, divinely connected holy presence, we are boldly claiming that the active God of the past is an on-the-move God who is acting now and will act in the future until all has been reconciled and made new. Now, what this looks like can differ greatly from one of us to the next in our theological vision. Some of us hang on to a vision of the divine that supernaturally intervenes in the affairs of this world. And on the other end of the spectrum theologically, some of us hold on to a vision of the divine that set things in motion as creator, but since then has left everything up to nature to run its course. And then there are those like me who are somewhere in between, at least most days. But finally, and this is really where the rubber hits the road for me, when we ponder the mystery of what a Trinitarian God means, we come to grips with a God who has relationships at the center of God's very core. Think about it. Another way to talk about the holy mystery as three in one is to talk about God existing as divine community. As one of my beloved professors in seminary would have said, 
God is the divine community who lives with and for and in each other in mutual openness, freedom, and self-giving love. How can that proclamation not blow your mind? Even though I cannot explain it, even though it is told at a slant, as Emily Dickinson would have described it, that truth about God as divine community? Think about that. That amazes me. It amazes me to think about God as divine community because it is almost messy in its mysteriousness. It amazes me because it is so mutual and interdependent. It amazes me to think about God as divine community because it reframes God as being in some kind of circle-shaped dance rather than sitting on a hierarchical throne of sorts. And it amazes me because if we begin to live as if it is all true, this God in community, then it has profound implications for our lives together as God's church and God's people. If God, at God's very core, is about mutually interdependent relationships, then what does that say about the reality that we are created in God's image? For me, it carries great impact. It says that we don't just exist beside each other, we aren't just supposed to love each other, but that we deeply need each other in order to be fully human and in order to embody this divine community. We cannot simply exist on our own in isolation and in autonomy, separate from the rest of the community. In order to really live out our identity as children of God, in order to fully and freely live as baptized people, we need, we are called, we are created to be in authentic and deep relationships with one another. We really must share one another's burdens. This is more than duty. It is our calling. Likewise, it is our high and holy calling to rejoice when one of us rejoices and to weep when one of us weeps. But the claim also goes even further than that mutual sharing of life's ups and downs. Our claim of God as divine community has serious implications for all of us. Churches can be so ugly that we've all likely experienced conflict in the church at some point that wounded us. And some of us have even caused it rightly or wrongly. Some days it seems so easy after witnessing people who are part of the same church being ugly one to one another to just walk away from it all. However, for me, and I believe in the vast majority of situations, certainly not all, there are always exceptions. This claim of God as divine community requires us to stick in there, to hang in there through all of it a lot longer than we otherwise would. If I truly believe that your well-being is wrapped up in my well-being and that this is also a part of who God is, you and I together, I can't just quit and walk away the first time something happens that wounds me. 
or upsets me or wounds or upsets the people I love. Now, let me qualify that. Oh, I certainly can quit and walk away. But I actually run the risk of missing out on something much more beautiful than my initial discomfort was painful. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not talking about walking away from repeatedly being harmed by the same person or group within a church. I'm talking about walking away after something upsetting or hurtful happens that is the exception to the norm and not, and, you know, and not the rule, you know, not the pattern for the way things normally go down in a church. Under normal situations, I should not quickly decide to separate myself from the beloved community without making certain that what I experienced was what someone else intended to happen to me. So if God is divine community at God's very core, then somehow you and I have got to figure out how to hang in there with one another so as not to lose out on who we have been created to be together. I don't always like that sort of challenge from God, but I do believe it is true. Somehow, in God's great imagination and humor even, it is only when we are together that we see the holy mystery with the clearest eyes. When we are together, that is when we catch glimpses of the truth told at a slant that is sublimely, no, divinely relational. When we are together, that is when we are living out our identity as creatures beautifully and lovingly created in the very image of the holy mystery. And trust me, some days I wish it were not so. But to my very core, I believe that it is so. The scriptures only show us glimpses of the holy triune mystery. And yes, they are told purposefully and definitely at a slant. And this makes some of us very skeptical when we first discover that slant. But the longer I live, I'm coming to believe that that poetic ambiguity is actually a gift. For it frees us up to imagine together what it means to be created in this sort of relational image. Emily Dickinson might have said, The Trinity is best described at a slant. The Reverend Dr. Barbara Brown Taylor describes this divine community as the luminous web of which we are all inseparably a part. And when we quit fighting it because of the rugged individualism that is so very much in the drinking water here in America, it frees us up from the need to explain and to analyze or to define every tiny aspect of all that is good and holy. It frees us to be poetic about God. It frees us to join the enormous, mysterious dance of the Trinity together. Even that term, Trinity, is something I used to resist, mostly because I couldn't explain it very well, and so I couldn't feel positive towards it since I couldn't wrap my brain entirely around it. But embracing mystery and admitting our inability to describe difficult things like the Trinity, frees us to rejoice in the beauty of the mystery, to complain about the messiness, and to face the challenges that come 
with our faith in a God who is divine community at God's very core. God is divinely relational and does not exist in a vacuum. But rather, God exists right where our lives intersect and right where we drop our defenses in favor of being vulnerable and authentic with one another. That's where we find God, friends. Not in certainty, not in dogma, but in the mystery, in the dance, in the circle of community, in the relationships. This God is relational and has made us in that image together as relational beings who make up this beloved divine community. So let us embrace this holy mystery, leaning into it when it would be easier to step away from this community, not only for our sakes, for the sake of one another, but quite literally, let's lean into this community for God's sake. Amen.